If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Cognitive science has shown that all of us suffer from biases that distort our reality, impair our judgment, and lead us to bad decisions. In this episode, Head of Philosophy at LSC, J. Mackenzie Alexander, talks through the findings of contemporary decision theory and what's really involved when we make a choice. If you enjoyed this episode, please do like and subscribe on your platform of choice. You can also visit iai.tv for hundreds more episodes of this podcast, as well as debates, talks, and articles. First of all, I should make one small note. So in my head, I misremembered the title of this talk rather than how to make the right decision. I conceived of it as how to make better decisions. And I suppose I'd like to kind of work with that in mind because I think it's a bit hubristic of me to try to imagine telling you how to make the right decision, all things considered. Instead, what I just want to do is kind of call attention to some of the things that can go awry when we actually try to make decisions and kind of you know, bring, that, bring that to your uh, awareness. So what I'd like to do as a way of beginning with this is, first of all, I would like you to begin looking at the first uh, question in the poll that hopefully you're presented with, which is what factors actually contribute to making a good decision? And if you can think about possible factors that contribute to making a good decision, if you could just type in a couple of one, think, do um, some free association, type in a word or two that come to mind about factors that contribute to making a good decision. Then what I'd like to do is actually go about constructing a word cloud based on your responses. And if this is working, hopefully we can actually now start seeing the things that people think contribute to making a good decision. Okay, fantastic. So now we're beginning to kind of crowdsource this. And so, okay, so Evidence, goals, good, those are the things that are kind of coming to most people's attention. And then there are a lot of other aspects, good information, intuition, vision, empathy. All right, experience, research, fantastic. Okay, so now there are some things here that I want to already call attention to. So information and evidence and intuition 
those are really important factors. And what I want to do in this talk is actually concentrate on some ways in which the evidence and information that we're presented with can interact with our intuitions in ways that seem actually, oddly enough, counterintuitive. So that way, when you think about how to deal with the information you're presented, if you aren't careful, you can actually end up making poor decisions, or at least not the right decision in terms of being able to process that information. So if some of you are familiar with the work in decision theory or psychology that people have talked about regarding bias and these decision issues, you may have seen one or two of the things I'm going to talk about. But I am also going to talk about some things from experimental philosophy and from work by Percy Diaconis, who's a mathematician who studied coincidences. So I hope that there will be something new here for absolutely everyone. OK, now having thought about what factors make good decisions, let me now turn to the next item in the poll, which is what can get in the way of making a good decisions. OK, here we see responses, muddled thinking, emotions, you know, various variables that you haven't tried to control for, narrow mindset, biases, and so on, fear, clarity. Okay. These are all very good points, and I'm going to come back to some of these themes as well, particularly clarity, because not being clear about what is the precise question that's being asked can often lead to poor decisions. Okay, so with that, now let me turn to the uh, sorry, let me turn to the next thing, the next aspect of the talk. So this is what I want to cover. So I want to begin with a very brief introduction on decisions and then look at some areas where our standard intuitions can go awry. And these will break down into uh, five different areas. And then I want to just close with some remarks about where you can go for further reading or further information on, on decision making if you're interested. OK, so to begin with, so I think one of the things that's really fascinating about making decisions and how people have studied making decisions is that effectively, since the very beginnings of philosophy and the natural sciences, the standard conception of human decision makers has been this highly idealized, perfectly rational decision maker. And so right there, I've got a, a, a photograph of the bronze bust of Minerva, the Roman goddess of wisdom, art, and commerce. And it's this highly idealized rational agent that's always been seen as the core of how we think about decision making. But through the work of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky and a whole host of other people, we now know that there are a whole host of different kinds of biases and aspects to our thinking which can get in the way of how we process information and can actually lead us astray in how we make decisions, you know, both in terms of conscious bias and statistical bias and also ways in which our brains can kind of leap to conclusions in ways that we are not always aware of. What I want to do now is actually kind of go through and explore some of these. Okay, so to begin, base rate basics. Let me begin with a story or just a kind of a, a thought experiment. So think about medical testing, right? This is gonna be a, a, just a kind of a case study, but once I talk through this, hopefully you can see how it will easily generalize to a lot of other cases that you'll be familiar with. Okay, so suppose that we're, you're, you're going to the doctor and you need to take a medical test that is pretty accurate, 
But of course, you know, no test is perfectly accurate all of the time, right? So suppose this medical test for some condition will mistakenly identify a healthy person as having the disease 5% of the time. But let's suppose that it, this test at least has the benefit that it will never fail to identify an unhealthy person, okay? So if that's the case, now suppose that we've got a group of 10,000 people, and what you know about that 10,000 people is that 2% of them have the disease. Okay, so suppose this is just part of your background knowledge. Okay, now you go to your doctor, they do the test, and then you find out that you get a positive result. Now the question I want to ask is, what is the probability of having the disease given a positive test result? Okay, so now if you can just think about that for a moment. You know, what's the probability of having the disease given a positive test result? Just think, I mean, think about this. Okay, so what are some people saying? So some people say 95%, 5%, 2%, 2 out of 7. Okay, so what else do people think? Okay, so depends on the pretest probability. Okay, so good point. So in the terms of the pretest probability, you know that 2% of the population has the disease. The test never incorrectly identifies someone with the disease, but it does incorrectly identify healthy people 5% of the time. That's all the information you need to know. Okay, fantastic. So this, I think, nicely highlights the thing, the, the point about base rates. I think many people have said 90% of the time, 95% of the time, and so on. So I think you might be surprised. Okay, so this graphic over here on the right, so it's a bunch of dots. Don't bother counting them. I can promise you that there are 10,000 dots there, one dot for each person in the population. Okay. Now, what we know is that 2% of the population have the disease. So that's 200 people. We know that 2% have that, and we know that the test is never wrong. So the test will always identify those people as having the disease. That's what this little green two rows at the bottom is about. Those are the people that the test gives a positive result for. But we know that everyone who doesn't have the disease, so that is all of the other gray dots here are healthy, but we know that the test is wrong 5% of the time for those people. So 5% of those people will get the positive test result. So those are the red dots down there. So when you say, what's the chance that you've got the disease given a positive test result, what you have to look about is, well, how many people is the positive result correct for versus the total population who get the positive test result. And that's 200 divided by 200 plus 490, 29%. So the thing that's important about this is that in cases where the base rate, the 2% of the population is very low, your intuitions about what the meaning of a positive test is can be really quite misleading. It's very natural to have a 95% you know, reaction, but that radically misrepresents what's actually on the ground. Okay, now here's why this matters. Base rates matter in how you, we process information in terms of, say, percentage of increase. 
how many times have you read a newspaper article where they say, look, if you eat bacon, there's a 300% increase in the risk of getting some disease. Okay, well, 300% increase sounds absolutely terrible. But you have to think about, well, what's the normal frequency of that disease in the population, just like this? If normally that disease is only 1 in 10 million, a 300% increase changes their risk from 1 in 10 million to 3 in 10 million. That's still so low that you're not going to really modify your behavior based on that, even though a 300% increase sounds terrifying. And likewise, a 5% increase might not sound like that much of a worry. But if you're told that there's, say, a 1 in 100 chance, a 5% increase can still change the odds so much that you would want to change your behavior. So the point is, when you think about how chances and probabilities are given, you have to keep in mind what's known as the base rate. How often is the condition in the population to figure out how much of a concern, how much of a concern you should actually have? Okay. Now, what I want to do now is turn to something that I think is a motivator for what uh, people often think of as signs of causation or signs of something important, and that is coincidences. Okay. So to begin with. What do we mean by a coincidence? Well, normally I think a coincidence is just something that happens which is so rare or unlikely that we just can't believe that it would actually be due to chance and that, or, and that we would be lucky enough to see this rare chance event. But there's an important thing to keep in mind about how we describe the event that we're talking about. So what I want to do is put up a, a kind of an anecdote here from Richard Feynman who is the Nobel Prize physicist who did a lot of fantastic work at Caltech. And so Feynman was this incredibly charismatic individual. And so as he started off one of his lectures, he said, you know, the most amazing thing happened to me tonight. I was coming here on the way to the lecture, and I came in through the parking lot. And you won't believe what happened. As I was coming through the parking lot, I saw a car with a license plate. ARW357. Can you imagine, of all the millions of license plates in the state, what was the chance that I would see that particular one tonight? Amazing. That's incredible. And what Feynman's trying to do here, and I thought, or the point Feynman's making, is that extremely low probability events happen all the time. But the thing is, we have to realize that when low probability events happen all the time when something is forced to happen. And then you go and you try to figure out retrospectively what the chance of that particular thing happening. And that can, that can be misleading in this case of the license plate. So the, pro the thing is, coincidences only appear coincidental sometimes when you think about the probability in retrospect. And so this is what um, a mathematician called Percy Diaconis calls the blade of grass paradox. He says, suppose I'm standing in the middle of a large field, like out here at the How the Light Gets In Festival. Suppose I'm wandering around and I just put my finger on a blade of grass. Well, if you think about all of the blades of grass here, the chance of picking the particular one you did is phenomenally low. But it's certain that you're going to put your finger on a blade of grass. Um, Percy Diaconis is really fantastic because 
he's a mathematician, but he got interested in paradoxes and coincidences through the most peculiar life history. He, he, when he was a teenager, he ran away to join the circus. And he was in the circus for a number of years before he then went back to school and studied mathematics. And he got interested in gambling. And he was you know, hired by casinos to figure out how many times you have to shuffle a deck of cards before you know, for it to be random and so on. So really fantastic individual. OK, so now here's a question I want to put to all of you to consider. OK, and this is a true story. <clears throat> a New Jersey woman won the lottery twice. Right? If each lottery offered a 1 in 4 million chance of winning, how likely was such an outcome? Okay. So think about that. So, oh, um, say, doesn't really matter. Say, like, within a four, say, um, I think the actual statistics were within a four month period. So, say, like, within a four month period, she won the lottery twice. Um, you're right. I mean, if someone could live infinitely often, right, and it's probably less surprising that it would happen in the course of their lifetime. Okay. Okay, depending on how often she enters. Okay, so 1.6 times 10 to the 13th. Okay, 1 in 16 million. Okay, very good. Okay, so what we're seeing here is that this is just one of those miraculous events. So the, you know, if it's a 1 in 4 million chance of winning, and you think of those as independent, then the way you would do that you know, from probability theory, you multiply them and you get a 1 in 16 trillion chance of that occurring. Okay, that's pretty extraordinary. But the point is, the actual chance is about 1 in 30, not 1 in 16 trillion. Okay, why? Okay, why? It's the blade of grass paradox. What's going on is, when you think about how likely is this such an event, you're thinking about the right answer to the wrong question. It's not a question about how likely is it that that woman would have won the lottery twice. We're asking the question, out of all of the hundreds of millions of people who play the lottery in America and who play the lottery repeatedly in America, how likely is it that one person would win the lottery twice? And that's the reason of why the odds are so fantastically low. Right? And so the reason why I mention this is that if you think about coincidences and you think, well, what would actually motivate you to thinking about maybe whether someone has engaged in fraud, whether they cheated, maybe they had some inside connections on the lottery board. You think, well, a 1 in 16 trillion chance is so low, shouldn't we do an investigation to see whether or not there was some fraud? Well, again, you have to be careful about what, this, what the calculation is. OK, another coincidence. So, um, Diaconis writes, so I had a friend watching a James Bond film and there was a four-digit code on a bomb that matched my bank account. Okay, well, here's the thing, you know, there are 10,000 four-digit numbers. If you know 120 numbers, you know, credit card numbers, phone numbers, pin codes, and so on, do the maths, you know, there's a one in four chance that two of those will have digit, four digits that match that, that number. Again, a coincidence that's not so coincidental. The principle that's at work here is that when thinking about coincidences, quite often people 
don't specify in advance what would count as a coincidence. And there are so many multiple endpoints about what could count as a coincidence that you can easily retrofit something after the fact to be seen as this remarkable coincidence. Okay, and again, that can mis mislead people. Okay, All right, so finally, so um, a friend said, you know, look, my daughter, myself, my husband all have birthdays on the 11th of a month. Okay, well, how many birthdays does a person have to know for there to be a 50-50 chance that three are on the same day of a month? Turns out you only need to know about 18, okay? But now, there are some other examples of this which are quite interesting. So, um, this is a point about near coincidences. So if you allow the, what counts as a coincidence to be fuzzy, they're much easier to find. Take, for example, some variations on this birthday question. So to begin, um, let's take a look at this first question. How many people do you need for there to be a 50% chance? How many people in a room like this do you need for there to be a 50% chance that two have a birthday on the same day? Okay. So no one else is going to write an answer, then apparently you all have already seen this problem before because that 23 is the correct answer. So thanks to whoever kind of spoiled the setup at that point. OK. All right. But um, what about this? So um, how many people do you need there to be for there to be a 50% chance that two people have Okay, someone else is already, um, okay. So, okay, so I'm thinking I might just need to skip the rest of this section. Um, okay, so how many people do you need there for to be a 50% chance that you have the birthday in the same week? Okay, so this is a little bit better. Um, but the thing is, if you look at the point here, so same day, within one day or within the same week, 23, 14, seven. So coincidences occur much more frequently than you actually like. In, or you would expect. And so the thing is, we're very e prone to inferring causality from things we think of as very low probability because it just can't be an accident. And this can very easily lead us astray. Okay, what I want to turn to now is I think a, a really interesting example with a real world motivation. And I think anyone who's had experience in managing organizations or having to make decisions about group data would find this uh, uh, kind of interesting. Okay, so the story is this. Back in 1973, so this is, uh, you know, kind of, you know, in the U.S. after, you know, the kind of feminist movement coming out of the 60s and universities were looking at their emission statistics and they were really worried about whether or not there was any kind of gender or sex discriminations in the emissions data. And the University of California, Berkeley, was going through their data and they found that um, students applying for postgraduate study, that you had the following. So you had men, a certain number of men apply, a certain number of women apply. The columns there just indicate how many were admitted or denied. But the important point here is Berkeley found that 44%, 44.3% of the men who applied were accepted. But 34.6% of the women who applied were accepted. So now, here's the question that I'd like you to think about. So given that, does the Berkeley data provide evidence 
of discrimination? Yes or no? So 44% of male applicants were admitted. 34% of women applicants were admitted. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Okay. So. Okay. Good. So we've got interest. So there are a lot of things that are that are at play here. One is you might think, well, is this, is this a question? Well, what's actually going underneath the, the hood in terms of the decisions here? I'll get to that in a second. One question, how concerned should we be about the possibility of discrimination? Well, some people think very little. Some people think sort of you know, somewhat concerned. Let me go into the, what was going on in terms of the findings because I think the story is very interesting. Okay, so let's just define that a bias against women just means a result unlikely to occur due to chance. You can make that a bit more precise by saying exactly how unlikely. But the thing that's really interesting is that at Berkeley, when they did the investigation into departments, they found something which really is very counterintuitive given the statistics I just showed. And that is this. So there, there were some departments that had a bias against women, but the bias wasn't nearly as extreme as you would have thought. So four departments had a bias against women, but the deficit, the shortage of women that you, would, that you found versus what you might expect were only 26 people. And the data I had was involving numbers in the thousands. Moreover, there were some departments that were found to actually have a bias favoring women. So six departments had a bias favoring of women, leading to there being 64 fewer men than you would expect. Okay, and so the question is, both of these stories are true. So 44% of male applicants accepted, 34% of women applicants accepted, but yet a bias in favor of women. Okay, what's going on? So here's the thing that's really interesting. So you can have Okay, so here are the intuitions. One intuition or one assumption is that there's no difference in ability between men and women. That's take that for granted. And so the rate of admissions is not contingent on gender or sex based on ability. But the second assumption that leads to this apparent paradox is that you're assuming that there are equal rates of application to all programs at the departmental level in Berkeley. And what you can have when you take data and you aggregate it or you pool it into a picture from a bird's eye point of view is that you can have equal acceptance rates 
interacting with different rates of application to create this apparent bias, okay? So here's this little table I've got here. Sorry? Okay, here's this table I've got. So this top two rows here show Department A, 200, 400 men apply, there's a 50% acceptance rate. 200 women apply, 50% acceptance rate. So equally likely to, be, to get in. Department B, so 150 men apply, one-third acceptance rate. 450 women apply, one-third acceptance rate. Equal rates of acceptance in both departments. It makes no difference you know, whether you're male or female. But then when you look at it, adding it together, there's a 45% acceptance rate for men, 38% acceptance rate for women. The thing that's going on is that women apply in greater numbers to departments that are harder to get into. And so the acceptance rates for that department are the same, but more women are rejected because more women apply. And that is what leads to this point about apparent bias. Now, the reason why this is important is because if you're thinking about how to make decisions and if you're a manager or you're organizing a group and you get this information, you've got on the face of it evidence that suggests maybe there's a bias that's going on, but you have no idea what kind of intervention may need to be made to fix that, right? Is it a bias in the acceptance rate or is it something else? And what we've seen here is not that there's, say, no bias whatsoever, the bias just isn't at the acceptance rate. There may be a greater cultural bias in the sense that women are more likely to apply to one department than another, right? And that's the point that's being brought out that needs the social targeting rather than just kind of whether or not you're being fair at the point of admission. So the point is this, when you pool data together, you might think that you're not losing any trends. You're just kind of like, you know, hiding over you know, details that don't really matter. But what this shows is you can actually, when you pool data, actually introduce the appearance of trends that aren't actually there at the, low, at the individual group level. Okay, so now I wanna go to two other things which are you know, kind of less statistical, but I think really interesting how we make sense of the world around us and decisions. First point about narratives. So this is one of the first papers that Kahneman and Tversky published, and this just had an enormous impact in how people think about making decisions. So this is, a, this is the story that's known in the literature as Linda the Bank Teller, okay? So if you just Google that, you can find hundreds of articles about it. So Kahneman and Tversky presented people with this vignette. They, they wrote, Linda is 31 years old, single, outspoken, and very bright. She majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice, and also participated in anti-nuclear discriminations. Which is more probable? One, Linda is a bank teller. Two, Linda is a bank teller and active in the feminist movement. Okay. So can I get your reactions here? Which is more likely? Okay. 
a little bit like a race, right? The no column is trying to catch up, but it's a... okay. So here's what's going on. So first of all, congratulations to all of you, right? So in the original study that Kahneman and Tversky did, over 80% of people said that it was more likely that Linda was a bank teller and active in the feminist movement. Okay, so well done, fantastic. Now the question is, well, why is it that people thought that that was more likely? Because the point is, Linda being more likely to be a feminist and a bank teller is just inconsistent with what we know about probability. It's just not possible for A and B to be more likely than A, right? So here's a kind of picture, right? If you imagine this rectangle is the universe, right? And then you've got A and B as events. Suppose that the size of the event, the size of the circle is how likely it is. You can see A, B, and then the A and B in the overlap. Well, you can just look in terms of area, right? It's impossible for the area of A and B to ever be larger than the area of A or the area of B. But what's happening in the case of Linda the bank teller, and this goes to how we think about decisions, well, the important point is that when we tell stories, when we engage in narratives, in ordinary communication, there is so much non-literal information in what we convey that is just not contained in the exact propositional content of what's being asserted. And so much of what we say is communicated in that way. It's what, it's what philosophers refer to as conversational implicature, right? It's things that you don't say directly, but it's things that are naturally teased out of what people say as a kind of an expected consequence. So think, think about these two cases as an example, right? So suppose you go back, I don't know, 100 years, and you imagine telling someone, okay, so you know, John and Mary got married and had a baby versus John and Mary had a baby and got married. Okay, so if you go back 100 years ago when there were, say, social norms about, say, you know, marriage and pregnancy and out of wedlock expectations, you know, pregnancies and so on, these two sentences don't communicate the same thing. And the reason they don't communicate the same thing is that whenever we, in kind of ordinary speech, the way in which we say things often, not always, but often, communicates a temporal order that we read into it. And so when you say something like, John and Mary got married and had a baby, that's not just a conjunction of A and B. It also contains this implicature that A happened first and then temporally followed by B. And in the case of Linda the bank teller, and, I, and, and, and quite, quite often in many of the decisions that we make, we can be misled by narratives that lead us to think that something else is being suggested or implied when it's not literally being said. So in the Linda example, you have these two options, Linda is a bank teller versus Linda is a bank teller and active in the feminist movement. And so if you're, the kind, if you're one of the people who thought, no, given what was said about Linda, it's more likely that Linda is a bank teller and active in the feminist movement. What's going on is, I think, a very understandable phenomenon. And think of it this way. So you know when you send text messages that you always have to watch out for autocomplete because sometimes autocomplete will jump in and say something that you don't really want to say, but it just kind of auto you know, finishes it? 
autocomplete is a kind of a general feature of your mind, right? And that when you're presented with Linda and the bank teller, quite often people will implicitly read that as Linda's a bank teller, and then the gap is filled in with and not active in the feminist movement. And what's happening is you're looking at the narrative of everything that she did at university, you know, marching against nuclear weapons and being active in the feminist movement there. And you're saying, well, how likely is it that I can reconcile this first future history of Linda with that narrative? And that's where you're relying on the autocompletes to fill in informational gaps, right? So that's one, that's another area where we can be misled in terms of decisions. Okay, so now the last example that I want to give before opening it up for a few questions at the end is about attributions of responsibility. So this, I think, is a, this is a kind of a, an, an interesting and a fun example. This is due to um, a philosopher named Josh Nob. So he, he was thinking about, well, when do we, how do we think about whether people did something intentionally, right? Or when they intended to bring about an outcome. I want to tell you two stories. So the first story is this. So the vice president of a company, some company, went to the chairman of the board and said, we are thinking of starting a new program. It will help us increase profits, but it will also harm the environment. And the chairman of the board answered, I don't care at all about harming the environment. I just want to make as much profit as I can. Let's start the new program. They started the new program. Sure enough, the environment was harmed. What I want you to think about is, let's see if I can hide this result initially. On the poll, it should say, how much blame does the chairman deserve for what he did? So on a scale of one to six, Okay. Okay. All right, so we got 13 participants. Any any other votes coming in? 21. Okay. Okay, so what's interesting about this is so there's variation in the data, but there is a kind of a a, a clear tendency towards, on a scale of one to six, six being um, blameworthiness, the chairman deserves blame for what he did. And then the question, did the chairman intentionally harm the environment? Oh. Okay, so sort of even split. Okay, good. Now, let me go to the second case. Same as before, but with a slight variation. Vice president goes to the chairman, says we're thinking of starting a new program. It will help us increase profits, but it will help the environment. Chairman of the board answered, I don't care at all about helping the environment. I just want to make as much profit as I can. Let's start the new program. They started the new program. Sure enough, the environment was helped. Okay, so now, Going back to this, how much praise does the chairman deserve for what he did? Oh, okay. A 
gosh, you're mean. Okay, all right. Okay, but I think, so this is the important point. There's a very big difference in thinking about this in terms of whether something was described as helping or harming. What about this next point? Did the chairman intentionally help the environment? Okay, so, so here's the point. That difference between helps and harms and how we think about intention and whether someone did something intentionally and whether they deserve praise or blame is interesting because think about it this way. With the way in which we kind of think about whether to hold someone responsible in this case hinges on whether we describe the outcome as good or bad. But holding someone responsible is different that's, that's a question of accountability or causality. It's different from saying whether we think the person ought to be praised or blamed or how we make a moral evaluation of what it is that they did or how we, whether we think about what they did intentionally. So the point is this, the moral evaluation of whether it was helped or harmed, good or bad, is strictly speaking irrelevant for attributions of causal responsibility. But yet it kind of goes into how we think about that. And so this is another case about how we can be led astray in making our decisions because moral evaluations affects how we can actually make attributions of responsibility. Okay, so where to go from here? Well, I've just got some books up here to mention uh, three great people, Gerd Gigerenzer, Daniel Kahneman, Michael Lewis. Gerd Gigerenzer has two books, Risk Savvy, how to make better decisions. That might have been how I was thinking about better decisions because wanting to give you advice, not tell you what the right thing is to do. Um, gut feelings, shortcuts to better decision making. Uh, Thinking fast and slow, Kahneman's new book. And Michael Lewis, this isn't really a decision theory book, but it's a fantastic story about the friendship between Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky and how the undoing project is this process of undoing the ideal rational agent and replacing our model of decision making with a much more human, much more um, imperfect uh, decision maker with all of the cognitive complexity that we find ourselves faced with. So thank you so much for your attention and your participation. Right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like and subscribe if you enjoyed. You can find hundreds more episodes of this podcast, as well as debates, talks, and articles on our website, iai.tv.